Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Macharco. This podcast is brought to you by Brilliant, a marketing and design studio based in Washington, D.C. Their team of designers, strategists, and engagement experts can help you build brilliant brands, campaigns, and revenue strategies. Reach them at Brilliant.co. That's B-R-L-L-N-T dot C-O. Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Mocharco, host of DC Entrepreneur, here on WERA 96.7 FM. In the studio today, we have Sheena Franklin, who is the founder and CEO of Well-Kept Beauty, Sheena was a lobbyist for 17 years prior to becoming the founder and CEO of her startup, and she started this company after working on cosmetic legislative reform and a personal traumatic experience with cosmetic problems. So thanks for dropping by the studio today. Absolutely, George. Thanks for having me. Now, we just mentioned that you're a former lobbyist with a background in politics, and now you're an entrepreneur. Talk to me about the journey of becoming an entrepreneur and how that happened. Yeah, so I would say my journey was a combination of a lot of different things. So I actually grew up around entrepreneurs. So my so my grandparents, my mother, my uncle, and I never really thought much about it. Um, and so throughout my career working in government relations, lobbying, I also had opportunity to run our grassroots programs, our PAC programs, and they're like building many businesses within the department. So it was messaging, communications. It was going out, surveying folks. It was managing the money and doing it like all on your own. And so I think it was just a natural, gradual progression of all these things coming together. And then I just got really involved in tech and the beauty industry. And as they say, the rest is history. Wonderful. That's a great backstory. So now you have an app that's going to be launching in September of this year. Talk to me about the app. Yeah. So the app is really about helping women and men who are really concerned about their health and wellness. So helping them to track their skincare routines or even their beauty routines. And what we do is we allow them to track the cosmetic ingredients that work best for their skin. So we don't use aggregated data such as reviews and comments. Each user will create their own profile. Um, each product, they can enter in their own personal notes for each product. They can create a listing of ingredients and possible irritants that they believe cause them problems. And they can also create a personalized skincare routine that they then can follow and if they have issues they can already have the information on their phone and present it to an esthetician or dermatologist and say these are the problems that I'm having so we're really trying to create a comprehensive way for them to manage their overall health and so now one of the features that I saw when we were just doing a demo earlier is that there's a way that you could find professionals through this Mm -hmm. right 
And so the professionals that are linked on this, are these people that have opted into having their uh, profiles displayed or is this something that you're pulling some of the best of the best in the industry? So initially, we're going to be pulling the best of the best of the, from the industry and then um, going further and deeper into that and connecting with them to create virtual appointments. So you might find out there's a great esthetician who's in Arizona. What's the likelihood of me flying from D.C. to Arizona? Not likely, but if she is really renowned in some type of skin treatment, then she can do a virtual appointment with me and give me tips on how to carry that out at home. We were talking about this also before taping, too. The FDA regulates cosmetics and skincare products. Um, And as you know, having worked in the government relations side of things, there's obviously regulatory hurdles for manufacturers of these consumer products to, um, to, to be mindful of. Talk to me about how the laws are there to help consumers and help protect them uh, about the cosmetic and beauty products that they consume. And why is there a need for cosmetic legislative reform? So that's a loaded question. Uh, and, I hope you, and I hope you don't get me in trouble <laughs> yeah. by my response. Um, I like to say that the industry is loosely regulated. Okay. So I'm not on the side of some consumer advocates who will argue that it's not regulated at all. And I'm not on the other side where I would say no more regulation. We're, we're operating, you know, the best we can. Um, since the law has been updated since 1938, I will say that it's behind and it needs to be updated. So to answer your question more directly, I would say there really isn't anything that's really out there to protect us when it comes to our skin health and cosmetics. Right. So why I say that is. There's limited ingredient oversight. So the U.S. will ban 13 ingredients. Other countries, and we're always compared to the U.K., they ban 1,300. That's a big difference. The United States does. The United States does not regulate expiration dates. Every other country does. So that's a big component. Um, there is no pre-market approval. There's no registry for brands. So the FDA doesn't actually know how many brands are out there on the market. So we don't know. There's no uh, requirement to report adverse reactions. You know, the FDA leaves that up to the brands. So there's no interest for a lot of brands to say we have we're having this issue. Take it off the market. So. It's there, but I would say it's not functioning the best it could. Interesting. So it sounds like this is the market opportunity that you're working on as a startup entrepreneur is to inform people and educate people about some of these issues. Exactly. And then help them along the way until the FDA gets there. If they get there, because we know how the government works. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, just kind of like outside of what we were talking about this, I mean, I know that they have patent pending. Sometimes the FDA has uh, with like uh, nutraceuticals, those kind of things like vitamins. Is that kind of the same thing that there might be a company that applies for a new product, but doesn't necessarily have like all the reporting requirements in there? Unfortunately, no. No. So that's why you have a lot of beauty brands, whether it's cosmetics, lotions, hair products, potions, they actually start in their homes, in their bathrooms, in their kitchens. You know, there's a product that I love that she started in her bathroom and she started selling at farmer's market. That's how it works. If you come up with something great and you want to put in a market, you can. But if you compare that to the food industry, you can't make products in your home and then sell them to the public. That's interesting. I actually had a guest on, uh, 
was my last guest on the show that he's a candle maker and ha- makes the candles in his apartment here in yeah. Arlington. So, yeah, it's interesting to see like kind of those, those startup stories there. Exactly. Um, which which I, I think, um, you know, if you think about it, that that's that's great because it's an opportunity for anyone to get into this business. But at the same time, I think people think with, with something specifically like related to chemicals that could be in these products, right? We want to know that there's some level of oversight. So uh, do you foresee that there's going to be more regulation on these types of products or is it going to just remain where it's at? I think it will be piece by piece. And I agree with you 100 percent. You want some type of oversight, but you don't want to stifle innovation. Right. So what I would like to see is. One, a standard definition of what natural and organic is in the beauty industry. And I really think there should be some type of registry. Maybe, you know, it's the cost is based on how big you are. But I think the FDA at the very least should know what's in the marketplace Yeah, at the very least. Um, so talk to me about how you went around developing the technology for your app startup. Is, is, you mentioned that you got into tech as part of your career. So tell me about kind of the tech behind the startup. Yeah, so I'm not a tech person. Um, I went to a couple classes to see if I can code, and I quickly decided that was not the track that I was going to take. Where'd you go? <laughs> so I went to like general assembly, okay. you know, online courses. I was just like, no. It's not going to work. I'm going to be I'm going to be the hustle side of, of the business, as they say, <laughs> you need that too, right? <laughs> right. You got to have both. Yeah. And so I just networked and mm-hmm. then I found um, a developer who put together our rough, rough MVP that allowed me to go out and talk to our early adopters. So these would be the beauty influencers that we all hear about, you know, on YouTube, on Instagram, because I knew that they would get the concepts mm-hmm. and not be distracted by the look of it or the experience, the user experience of it. Yeah. Um, and then I also did surveys and I just went out and talked to hundreds of women just to figure out their patterns, their habits. I joined Reddit groups, Facebook groups. Um, I was very good in the Reddit groups. I didn't get kicked out because they're pretty, they're harsh, you know, like they have no selling, no advertising of any, of any sorts. So that was cool. Um, and then I used that for a while um, and then found another developer that mm-hmm. I found through an accelerator program that I was in. And we created the first version of the app. And these developers are going to stay on for the long haul. Okay. And then I'm looking to bring on a CTO to manage all that. Do you just have people kind of working on retainer as, as contractors for this right now? Yeah, so mm-hmm. I do um, contract. Okay. Um, so I'll just give a piece of advice to anyone who's listening. Do um, flat rate contracts. Don't do the hourly. And then I also do it on project basis. Okay. So this this feature and this feature for a project, this, how long, this is how long it's going to take. So it doesn't, the price doesn't fluctuate, get crazy. And so how have you gone about fundraising for this? Is it bootstrapped by you or are you um, seeking additional investment right now? What does that look like? That's a great question. So I have primarily bootstrapped to this point. Um, I had an uncle who believed in me, who's an entrepreneur. He gave me a couple thousand and said, go create this MVP you're talking about. He doesn't do technology. Um, and then fortunately, I was accept- accepted into Accelerate Baltimore, okay. where they gave us $25,000 in seed funding. 
Um, And that came at a pivotal time for me. So I was able to upgrade to version one, the back end and front end. So getting on Firebase, putting automations, you know, dynamic linking and all that kind of great stuff. Did they come from like a pitching pitch event or is it? uh... So you apply to be part of the program Uh and whoever is accepted, they accept between six to seven. You automatically get $25,000. We we had to go and pitch to them to get into the program. So as far as Fundraising um, is something that I went back and forth on a lot. And I decided for me in the position that I'm in, um, I needed more negotiating power when I did go to the table with the investor. So I decided not to seek investment and then just continue to bootstrap and have a plan to make money on day one. So I can go to the investor and say, you know, yes, I have uh 2,000 users, but Mm -hmm. I'm actually having, you know, $15,000 in recurring revenue every month. So unfortunately, you can give me 50,000, but I'm not going to give you 30% of my company. Yeah. Like they would have acquired before pre-launch. And I don't think a lot of founders take that into account. I think we get caught up in the news of like this founder raised 5 million or 2 million or 3 million, not realizing you're giving up a lot of your company. A company. Yeah. So you'd rather keep the equity then. Keep the equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so you mentioned there's over a hundred thousand products that you're tracking with the app. That seems like a lot. How do you go about finding the data? Because um, obviously there's a lot of data there. There's the expiry date, the ingredients, the possible allergens. Like how does that? How are you aggregating that for your startup? Yeah. So how it works is we're working with Amazon initially um, since they have the biggest. I would say database that's reliable so like they keep up with their their content so all that feeds into the app and then we also allow users to take products or take images of products that they find maybe they traveled overseas or they went to a farmer's market and they found something really great so that's how we build up the database so luckily with amazon they provide ingredients and they also provide the description And then from there, we use the industry suggested use by dates for the expiration date. Now, the FDA doesn't regulate. They don't require the brands to put it on there, but they have suggested guidelines. So that's how we do the expiration. And then the allergy portion, that is all driven by the user because we all have different reactions. Who are some of the startups that you admire or who are you trying to model yourself after? Are there anything, any any uh, inspirations like that? Absolutely. So there's three. Uh-huh. Um, first would be Jeff Bezos um, because he had an idea everyone thought was frivolous, was not a good idea. No one wanted to invest in his company. They were like, who's going to buy books online? They're just going to go to Barnes and Nobles, books a million. Um, and he got investment from his family. He bootstrapped and he only had to raise $8 million. Now you compare that to, only. <laughs> but if you compare that yeah. to the other startups that are out there, uh-huh. they're raising 35 million, 24 yeah. million, giving up 40, 50% of their company. Now he has a billion dollar business. He's worth personally worth a billion dollars because he kept all that equity. Yeah. And I think that's great. And then now he, it's just interesting. So now he put an industry out a business, you could say, like the bookstores. Um, and now they have an Amazon bookstore in the same spot in Georgetown that Barnes and Nobles was in. Right. 
that's genius, right? To me, it is like, I don't know if I would do that, but just his power to think about today, I'm selling books. Tomorrow, I could do something much bigger than just books, yeah. right? Um, the next person would be Pat McGrath. She's a famous international makeup artist. Okay. And she does all the famous, you know, runways, boat covers. And she started a cosmetic line and with all, without all the fanfare, you know, all the press. And she recently um, secured her first investment last month. And now she's valued at a billion, billion dollar company. And she, it was her herself and just her expertise. And then lastly would be LeBron James or King James, depending on how you feel about about him. I've been a fan of him and his part, business partner, Maverick, for a very long time. Um, they've been investing in startups, I want to say for years. Um, they built up Akron by investing in small businesses. So I just think that's and he's also. I think a role model for other NBA players. So now you're starting to see them invest more into companies outside of Silicon Valley. That's true. I think it's cool. Yeah, you see a lot more sports uh, players that once they retire, once they're inactive, start to go that route. Yeah, yeah. it's an interesting story. And it's not you know um, the car dealerships anymore uh-huh. yeah. or like the retail brands, <laughs> the like, restaurant, <laughs> yeah, car wash. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great response too. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Here's a question that I like to ask because I just think it's interesting and yields some uh, unique responses. What's the worst advice you have had as a startup entrepreneur and, and what's the best advice you've received? The worst advice? I know like whoever's going to listen to this, especially like an investor maybe, or is you have to have a co-founder, right? Like that's a, a huge um box that people want you to check is having a mm-hmm. co-founder people advising you to have a co- you got to have a co-founder okay. don't get started without a co-founder uh-huh. and i think you know that's great maybe if you're younger and you're sitting on a college campus or in graduate school and everybody's congregating together or you live in silicon valley and that's you know everybody's drank the kool-aid but if you're outside of that world and you have a great idea i think you should work towards that idea and don't stop otherwise you're going to you're going to penalize yourself without even knowing if you can do it. And at the end of the day, if you can go to an investor and say, I have all this traction, money talks. They're going to give you the money at the end of the day, whether you have a co-founder or not. Um, so the best advice I was given is not to get on this treadmill of just work, 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 work and work 24 hours a day, you know only sleep for an hour and only eat Roman ramen noodles. You know, it's have a life because starting a startup is five, seven years of your life. You don't want to wake up, you know, depending on how old you are when you started the business for myself, you know, I'm, I'm 40. I don't want to make up at 48. Be like, wow, I'm 50. What do I have? You know, like you got to live. Yeah, that's that's definitely great advice. And I think work-life balance is one of those issues for entrepreneurs that we just don't discuss enough. And it's very easy, I think, when especially whenever you're a solopreneur, to always be working on the business. Sure. Even even if you are relaxing, somewhere in the back of your mind, you're thinking of a your new concept. Your mind is constantly right? moving. So, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's great. Um, so any advice that you would like to give to future entrepreneurs that are listeners of the show? I would say... Um you have to be very flexible. Okay. You know, you, you're going to learn a lot about yourself by being a founder. 
very quickly <laughs> um that you things that you didn't know were about you you may discover like i'm really a super i a type i've really gotta calm that down or um i'm really a perfectionist and that was one for me i just thought oh i just wanted to do the best job i possibly could but in building the app i realized you're just going too hard like you gotta step back like you don't have to have all the features all at once. You know, even if it's demo day, you don't have to code the whole thing. You could just do portions of it. So like you're going to learn a lot and just be open minded and flexible and, and willing to change. It seems to me every time I bring an entrepreneur in, there's a lot of similarities uh, amongst them. Do you feel that entrepreneurship is kind of an uh, innate trait or something that people are born with? Or do you think that anybody can be an entrepreneur? That's a great question. I think. I'm going to go on a limb and say, I think it's something that everybody's born with. Okay. But I think it may be nurtured in different ways and at different points in your life. Okay. Right. So I grew up around entrepreneurship, never even thought about it. Well, I don't want to do that. But there was these characteristics that I had that were nurtured by my family and my friends. If I had an idea, oh, yeah, try it. You know, it wasn't squashed. Right. You know, okay. I think and I think sometimes you may be a child or an adolescent and your parents or a teacher or a professor may say, oh, you need to be a little bit cautious. And they they damper that risk taking ability that you have. And then fast forward when you're 45, you've worked in corporate America. You're like, yeah, I, I got to leave the legal field. I'm going to go open a bakery because that's what I wanted to do. Right. And I think that's what happens. Yeah. So it's it's really kind of risk tolerance that's taught, um, not directly, but indirectly from the people that you surround yourself with. Sure. And just like everybody's not meant to be an entrepreneur. Like we can't have a society of all entrepreneurs. It's just not the way it's going right. to work. Right. So I, if everybody's not an entrepreneur, then there are people that I believe are born with those types of traits that make you an entrepreneur. Yeah, I have to say there's a lot of personality characteristics that you see in common with entrepreneurs. And it's not necessarily the ones that we think about, like having to be outgoing or type A personality, because there's plenty of introverted entrepreneurs. But I think there's something about, I don't know what it is. There's something maybe that has to do with them wanting to be in charge of their idea and their dream. And their destiny, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why that is. I, I may, for me, like, I, I think it's stubbornness. <laughs> it's hard to work for somebody else. But for somebody else, it could be something completely different. Like, they just want to prove that their idea actually has merit or value somewhere in, in the world. And you want that autonomy sometimes. Yeah. 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 yeah I would say that those are all characteristics. So where, where did it all start? Growing up, I actually spent a lot of time with my grandmother. So my grandmother was involved in the community, not in politics, but more on serving on different boards. Mm -hmm. And so I always had like this service attitude. So when I got to college, I had a friend who ended up interning for Vice President Gore at the time. So I think I just dated myself. But that's okay. Um, and he came back and he was like, let's start this um, college Young Dems program for like um, the AUC, which is the Atlanta University Center. So I went to an HBCU in Atlanta. So it was Clark Atlanta, Spelman, Morris Brown and Morehouse. We all created this group and we all started to go volunteer on campaigns. Um, and so I was working for the Gore campaign and you can transition 
to doing, I'm laughing. You can transition to do different things like door knocking, you know, canvassing, you know, on the streets. I was like, yeah, this is not going to work for me, guys. And so I got sent to the headquarters office. And that's when I learned, like, I started to meet lobbyists and I started to meet fundraisers. And I learned this business side of politics. So that's how I got involved. And then I just ended up networking my way to D.C. in the lobbying world. Okay. And so, but you hadn't like explicitly set out to, to study government relations. Mm-hmm. I or... was actually going to go to law school okay. so I could be a sports agent. That was oh, okay. the goal. Entertainment law. That's that's a pretty big industry. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to do um, be a sports agent for the NBA. Okay. See, I could have discovered like LeBron or something. Yeah. But you went in this different direction. Do you feel like going in the direction was the right path for you? Yeah, I loved every moment of it. Okay. Um, And because I had that other side where I could see the business side of like government relations and politics, I think it it was just a natural fit for those characteristics that I already had of being in business. Do you feel that there's um, that you've taken on a lot of risk with this idea or do you feel that starting at the time that you have and with the maturity that you have that you're able to mitigate some of the risk that you might have if you were, um, if you were starting at a different time. Absolutely. Yeah. I was having this conversation with someone else and I said the younger Sheena couldn't do it. The younger Sheena, she didn't have the experience. She didn't have a different type of confidence. I've always been confident, yeah. but there's a different level of confidence once you reach like 35 40 where you're kind of more assured and you're you you can call someone else out when they're being disingenuous or if it's not right for you I think that's a huge thing that I see with younger founders too especially when you go to different programs where there's all these advisors and mentors you could feel like you're on a hamster wheel and it's just saying no I don't want to do that that's you know, people always say you should focus on e-commerce, e-commerce. I don't want to be e-commerce platform. I'm about health and, you know, your wellness and the FDA. I'm not about pushing product. Yeah. Right. So. So defining your boundaries then. Yeah. For what, what you want to work on and whatnot. Yeah. And then uh, another component of that, too, um, that, that I think we don't always think about is when you're starting, uh, whatever the idea is, timing has to come into play. So why do you think that the timing is right for this idea right now? I would say the beauty industry is taking a lot of cues from the food industry, right? So we saw this huge movement with ingredient awareness. Then it became natural ingredients. Then it became not processed. Now everyone's becoming a vegan, right? And so then that led into fitness everybody wants to track their fitness habits and so people's mindsets have changed and so now it's I've already taken care of what's going in my body but now there's been a rise in cancer there's reports that women have two and sometimes three times the toxic level of men because of the product that we use well what are these products makeup skin care so now people are starting to look into that that's why I think it's a great time and this consumer insight awareness is starting to push manufacturers, starting to push the FDA to acknowledge mm-hmm. the problems. Um, so say, for example, L'Oreal, one of the biggest, you know, traditional legacy brands there is. They finally, after lots of pressure, released their ingredients list. Like 
fully. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're changing their formulas because of consumer pressure, right? Um, and you can also take a look at uh, the hair care market. So you had, you know, now you have a lot of African-American women who are not no longer getting perms and they're not like getting chem- chemicals, right? So they stopped buying perms. So now the industry lost massive amounts of money. And that's based on fashion trends though, right? So no, like it started before that, okay. right? So now because of these women of color, they're not buying these products anymore. They saw massive drops in their sales. Now they're starting to come out with natural ingredients, you know, for curly hair, you know, for ethnic curly hair. It's, it's just all over. But before they really didn't care. But okay. it was women saying, I don't want to put that on my hair anymore. It's damaging. It's falling out. Like all these different types of things. So it's it's a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. So you got to get in. Yeah. Now. So the timing is right. Yeah. Great. How can they get in touch with you? Yeah. So you can email me directly at hello at wellkeptbeauty.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at wellkeptbeauty.com. Well, Sheena, thanks for taking the time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur. Is that it? That's it. <laughs> cool. That was fun. Yep. Uh... Yeah, I was like, I just asked that question. <laughs> Your that's advice. All right. um, that's all right. I can edit it and post. I can always give more advice. I don't think we mentioned what. See, the, the whole thing about mentioning the price of the app is tricky because with the radio station, yeah, we can't do any explicit calls to action because it's just informational yeah, yeah, programming. Yeah. But with a podcast, we could do that. Um, so if you want, maybe we could say, how can they find the app? So how can they find the app? So the app will be released in September and you can find it on iTunes. And then probably towards November will be available in the Google Play Store. Okay, great. All right, so we got that. Cool. All right, I think that's it. Thank you for stopping by. Absolutely, that was fun. All right, let me go ahead and stop recording.